Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. I have Dan Bates here with me today. Hello, Dan. How are you? Hello. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, visiting our Jericho office. Happy to be here. Awesome. So um, let's just, uh, today we're going to talk about stress management and a little bit about stress inoculation training, kind of a hot topic in all levels of EMS and in the military and in the fire departments, really anywhere where people are going to experience high levels of stress. This is kind of the the cat's pajamas when it comes to new training styles that actually work and make a difference. So um, if you don't mind, do you want to just tell the folks a little bit about how did you first get your start in EMS and kind of some of the twists and turns on your way to end up where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I have a lot of twists and turns on the way that I've ended up. Uh, I started in 1988. Uh, I was chasing a girl. Uh, Her mom taught EMT (laughs) class. And uh, I just had this moment of thinking about Johnny and Roy and watching Emergency 51 and said, well, if I take the class, I can get close to this girl. And uh, <clears throat> it didn't work out with the girl, but I stayed in EMS. I went from there to AMT school and uh, college. And then when I graduated from college, went on to paramedic school. Yeah. Nice. And then I worked in Syracuse, New York for a little while uh, and then Portland, Maine for a little while and then started teaching in 2003, uh, I ran the paramedic programs in the middle part of Maine uh, and uh, taught. And I, I was still an EMS provider, still worked on part time, but uh, taught mostly from 2003 until 2016. 2016, I came up here to Vermont and took the job as EMS chief for the state of Vermont and uh, did that for four years. And then this year, just got promoted. So now I'm the division director of uh, the Division of Emergency Preparedness, Response, and Injury Prevention, which is still the the division that holds EMS in Vermont, but it's just, uh, I got a few more responsibilities now. Yeah, I got to imagine that's uh, quite a job to have over the last year and a half. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's It's huge. been a little busy. It's been yeah, a little busy. Bet. Absolutely. So, uh, well, we love having you on the show. Um, some of the things that... Uh, we just want to talk about is is the basic physiology of what people experience when they encounter stress. And you and I and, and the rest of the EMS providers, we see this on a daily basis when we're interacting with family members or bystanders. You can see how quickly they get elevated when something, yeah. even something small happens. You know, I've, I'm sure you and I have both been to situations where, you know, a little old lady has a syncopal episode in church and, you know, somebody's trying to do CPR and they're dragging out of her there, you yeah. know, and somebody's holding their head and looking for a doctor and, and uh, that may be something that we see every day, but uh, do you want to share just a little bit about maybe what the brain goes through yeah. when, when it's not prepared for elements of stress? Yeah, I was really excited to talk about this because I, I, I think it's so important when we talk about EMS providers and, and, and the work that we do, um, because when I look at all the mistakes that I made and when I look at the mistakes that I see on a regular basis and you know, working in the EMS system here, I, I see how that stress and that situational stress, the, you know, the, the anxiety and the fear and, and all of that that goes into being an MS provider, how it impacts people um, in, in the job that they do. And I think it's really important as we, as we think about how we develop EMS providers is to think about how those reactions impact their capabilities, right? So not, not and, and I don't mean, there's a, a much larger conversation here about long-term stress and burnout and things like that, but I'm talking just about like situational stress and, and the impact that it has uh, on the ability to do the job, because I think it, it's a, a vastly underrated situation. You know, I, I look at the, the I, every month I have a stack of folders on my desk of of problems that have happened in on EMS calls. And, 
you know, okay, there's there's a few in there that are people who are lazy and just didn't do the job they were supposed to do. And there's a few in there who legitimately people were dumb and just didn't know the information they, they were supposed to know. But, you know, that's a pretty small minority. And it's I'd say it represents probably about 10% of all the problems that we encounter at the state level. What really happens in most cases is that we have good people, well-trained people, that are just overwhelmed by the circumstances, that they just get themselves in over their head, that the situation gets bigger than them. And for whatever reason, uh, it overcomes their capability to do the job. And, and I think that has a direct corollary to this feelings that are going on in their body, right? Because we know there's real challenges, right? I mean, not only is there cognitive changes, and I think we should talk about that, but there's also physiologic changes, right? I, I mean, we know that when somebody gets into a, a, a place of distress, right? So when they're, um, you know, we, we, we all have a, we fashion ourselves in a certain way. We think of ourselves in a, in a certain model, right? And we actually kind of harm ourselves in EMS because we teach everybody that you have to be a Superman. We say things like, oh, you can't make any mistakes or, you know, you have to do this all by yourself. Don't ask for any help kind of model. I mean, think about the way we test people. You go to the, the, the trauma assessment station and we say, you know, okay, multi-systems trauma, go in there by yourself and don't ask for anybody for help. You know, I mean, like that's completely not how it would ever work in real life and, and never, but, but we, but we promote that. We say that's how it has to be. Right. So, so people walk out of that class with this notion of I'm just a superhero, right? I have to be, yeah. I have to be better than everybody else. Yeah. But the problem is when they get into these situations and, and they're not, <laughs> and the situations are harder than they thought, or they're different than they thought, or they're more challenging or for whatever reason, that's a pretty powerful sensation going on in the body, right? You know, the cog they call it cognitive dissonance, but that that difference between what you think you should be and what you can do in that moment is really distressing, and it's really difficult to deal with, and that has that really significant problem that it, it causes those challenge those changes in the body. So, you know, the big things that we think about. From a physiologic standpoint, there's a, a, a guy named Bruce Siddell who talks a lot about this. He, uh, uh, Dave Grossman in uh, um, uh, uh, On Combat, I don't know if you've ever read that book, yes, but it's a terrific yeah. book. Yeah. He, he quotes Siddell's work and Siddell, I mean, it's a little bit of pseudoscience. It's not perfect, but, you know, the notion of Siddell saying that that he used heart rate as a surrogate marker and, and measured people's performance in, with, you know, under stress. And what he can demonstrate is that heart rate goes up, we see predictable changes occur in the body, right? And, you know, everything from from simple um, uh, complex motor function and fine motor dexterity failures on up to just complete shutdown, can't do it at all. And then cognitive changes, you know, from the difference in decision making and processing and, and you know, uh, even things like auditory and sensory exclusion, that yeah, kind of stuff yep. is all going on. But these are predictable changes. Not only are they predictable, but they're reproducible. In other words, I could take a paramedic student and put them in a lab and mess with them a little bit, and we could see these same same thing happen. And um, you know, that, we've got to be able to anticipate that. We've got to be able to, to predict that's coming because if we don't, of course we're going to fail. Um, you know, one of my favorite studies that, that that I used to talk about a lot when I was teaching, they took a group of army medics um, uh, down in North Carolina and they brought them into a, a, a tourniquet class. And they said, uh, okay, on the first day of turning class, all we're going to do is time you, right? So they had these sophisticated mannequins and they could measure the pressure. And they said, okay, go, put a tourniquet on. And they put the tourniquet on and they timed everybody and they set a baseline. And I think the baseline was like, uh, you know, just a little less than a minute. And uh, of course, you know, everybody put the tourniquet on successfully. These are yeah. all experienced providers yeah, yeah. And, and all that. 
So they did the uh, they did that on the first day. Then they said, okay, we're going to practice now. So for the next section of the class, you know, the rest of the day, all they did was put tourniquets on and they gave them pointers and they, you know, put them up on the table and under the table and outside and, you know, all these different contextual situations. And they said, uh, okay, we're going to remeasure at the end of the day. And predictably, everybody got a little bit better. The, the time dropped about 10%. Uh, you know, so everybody went from about a minute to about 50 seconds. You know, everybody got better at tourniquets and nobody failed. On the second day, they said, okay, we're going to do this all again, but we're going to add some stress to the situation. So they took them out to the obstacle course and they made them navigate the obstacles. So there was a little bit of a physical challenge. Yeah. And they shot on with paintballs. Now, paintballs don't kill you. But they hurt enough to know that it's coming and your brain starts thinking, I don't want to get hit with a paintball. Yeah. When they started shooting paintballs at him, the time to put a tourniquet on went not only a little bit longer, but it went longer than the first day of class. So they, they, it took them longer to put a tourniquet on than just walking in, even though all they did for the last full day was put tourniquets on. But that's not the important part. The important part is one out of eight of them failed. One out of eight people said, I can't do this. Even though for the last eight hours of a class, all they did was tourniquets on successfully. But under stress, when, when the paintballs were flying, those little fingers just couldn't put tab A into slot B and, you know, whatever it was that they had to do, just couldn't do it. Yeah. So, you know, that we, we can show, we can demonstrate that, that that physiologic change really happens. A complex motor function fails, and yet we have these expectations. You know, when we first started teaching tourniquets, we were all about, like, you got to pull it through the thing and slide it back through instead of just tightening it up. You know, we've got to be thinking about those kind of gross motor skills that are going to be capable under those circumstances. I think, though, that the bigger problem is not physiologic, you know, not physical, like, like skill-wise stuff, but it's mental, right? Because... That's where the real problems occur because that's that's where you get into trouble in EMS, right? When you start making bad decisions. And we know that there's certainly a lot of that cognitive processing stuff, you know, when that cortisol starts flowing, it starts yeah. getting into your brain and begins to affect the, you know, uh, the prefrontal cortex and, you know, the places that where you, you, you value and make judgment decisions and stuff like that. Um, the other book that I really like on this is a book by a guy named Daniel Kahneman. He won a Nobel Prize it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. And he says, you have two parts of your brain. You have system one and system two. In system one, it's the kind of decisions you make without thinking, right? It's, it's how you get in your car and drive. Like you don't get in your car and go, well, let me think about how to drive. You know, like you just do it, right? Yeah, yeah. And if you ask somebody at a bar tonight and you go, what's two plus two? They're always going to go four. You know, they're not going to think about it. But at the same time, if you ask them next, what's 19 plus 13? What you're going to see them do is their eyes will go up and to the left. And that's a sort of phenomenon that just happens. And they're going to, they're going to have to engage a different part of their brain. They're going to engage what Kahneman will call system two. And it pulls from nested context. It pulls from experiences they've had. So they got to go back to like fourth grade math class and go, all right, I carry the one and all that. And they get to that decision a little, they can get there, but it's a little harder to get there. What Kahneman will talk about and what Grossman will talk about a little bit too is that when we put people under all that cortisol, that stress, that, you know, the distress or that, those significant moments, things that were system one become system two. And if you think about it, it makes sense because for years and years and years, field goal kickers have been failing in these moments, right? You know, and if you said to a, an average NFL field goal kicker, here's 100 footballs, go kick them, they're going to get like 99 through the uprights. But at the same time, if you put that guy at the end of the game with a game on the line and the coach calls a timeout and makes him think about it a little bit, all of a sudden, he's not just kicking the ball anymore. He's like, I got to get the laces right yeah. and the hand and they got to get the hold right and to get a plant foot and boop, 
now it's going in the opposite direction, you yeah. know? So we know there's those kind of changes that are going on in our brain. And I, I look at these situations where we put people in, in EMS, and I go, of course they made a mistake. Of course they didn't make a good decision. Of course the, the simple, easy thing that we would expect everybody to do was 10 times more complicated when mom is screaming at you or when everything's not going right on that call or it's the, the 19th thing that's gone wrong today. You know, like, of course all that stuff is happening. And of course they fail, you know, so we've got to, we've got to start talking about this. We've got to start being able to predict this happening when it goes on. I went down, I, I, I uh, was asked to give a talk for the uh, FDNY incident management team and incident management team was stood up after 9-11 and they're the team that's, they're handpicked through the department and they're trained to take over when an average response in FDNY doesn't do it, you know, when, when they need more. So these guys have seen some pretty crazy stuff in their day, you know, yeah, and, the, and, the, and they train imagine. to see the crazy stuff. Yeah. And I said to them, there was a group of about 600 guys in the room. And I said, uh, how many of you have just locked it up under stress? Just curious, you know, ask, ask the whole group, like two thirds of the hands in the room went up, you know, like, and I'm thinking to myself, if these guys whose job it is to handle the crazy stuff are all locking it up, how can I ever expect some 19-year-old EMT that just got out of class two weeks ago to not lock it up under stress? And, you know, the, the notion I had standing on that stage was it's not reasonable to think yeah, that, yeah. that it's going to happen. Of course he's going to lock it up under stress. So what we've got to do is give him the tools to figure out how to navigate that, how to, you know, how to, how to recover from that when it happens. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting concepts here is this whole idea that's going around in mental health and science where it's, some of it's just recognizing that that's what's happening. Yeah. You know, when you, and I, I know this is big for me if I'm on a call, especially if I'm, I just had a call recently, a guy in VTAC didn't convert with synchronized cardioversion, doc wants amiodarone, it's bubbling up, like just all of these things are happening, yeah. low blood pressure, and I could feel like my heart rate rising. Yeah. I could feel me getting stressed out and saying like, oh man, I like I got to figure this out. Like this guy's still in this rhythm. He's sick. He's low blood pressure. He doesn't look good. He's sweaty. He's pale. He's diaphoretic. He's weak. Yeah. Like, and you can just feel your body coming up. And I think teaching providers, one, to recognize that that is actually a normal reaction. Right. Like you are in a high stress environment and your sympathetic nervous system is doing what it's always been trained to do yeah. properly. You're not broken for reacting that way. You're not a failure because you got stressed out. You know, that's normal. And the minute that you recognize that you're not the odd one out when you feel that way, I think it, you actually come, you actually, your, your heart rate and everything comes down a little bit. Cause you're like, wait a minute, I'm not broken. I'm just a human being. Now, now I recognize that. All right. What's next? What's the next totally step? Totally agree with you. Totally. I, I think it's, it's, it's self-awareness is so important in there. I think it's also important as we bring these people up to give them some opportunity to experience that. Now, I mean, we're never going to be able to replicate that yeah. fully in a class. But, you know, the notion of learning from failure, and I don't mean like fail the class, kick you out kind of failure, yeah, yeah. but like get yourself into a scenario that's harder than your capabilities are to, to feel that feeling of, I don't know what to do here, what, you know, I'm stuck and to be able to recover. I think that's a really important experience and, and we can replicate that a little bit in class, you know? Yeah, it's definitely huge. I think exactly like you said, we, we, one of the keys to this is making sure that we provide confidence building activities in the right time. Sure. And I, I think one of the ways I've been discouraged is I just took a class in another state. It was a tactical medicine class. We do tourniquet use, just like you said, they had us run around We put some tourniquets on the next thing they said, like, okay, we're going to do a scenario. So we're like, all right, great. So the next drill, they gave a bunch of us rubber rifles. I'm not 
trained in any sort of combat <laughs> at all. They pop off colored smoke. They got cameras going around to get cool shots for their program. They got somebody firing off blank rounds, and they're like, oh, this is going to stress mm. us out. And me and the gentleman that I went with, we asked his instructor, we said, hey, like, what's the purpose of this drill? Like, we don't understand what it is you want us to do. If, it, if you just wanted us to put a tourniquet on, we can do that. But nobody knows where they're going. Nobody yeah. knows who's doing the security team. No one knows who's doing the medical. And... It was so much so quick. I left that drill feeling bad because I failed. I had no confidence. I was frustrated. I didn't feel like the expectations were clear. And I think just the timing and the trajectory of escalating stress and drills the right way and the right time, I think is huge too. Yeah, I think think that's a really important thing to say. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, for me, it's not so much about... when, When we would do these evolutions with paramedic students, it wasn't so much about stressing them out because... That happens on its own, yeah. right? And, you know, like, yeah. I don't need to play loud music and scare them. That's yeah. that's not the same thing. Yeah. It's more about complexity, right? And making their brain engage, right? And and as, as they go through these evolutions, we want them to be complex enough that they actually have to work hard to get to the right answer. And I think that where the stress comes is from a certain degree of failure, right? Sometimes we would make these scenarios more difficult, more complex than they had the capabilities to fix. And it, that's a different thing than scaring them and being mean to them, right? Yes, that, I agree. That what we would do is make them have to get to the point of saying, I don't know what to do, right? Because there's a whole secondary level of skill set at that point that you've got to engage. And it's not the same thing as textbook learning. It's not the same thing as like regurgitating a skill sheet back. It's making them think on the fly and 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 and, and relying upon the resources that are around them, right? It's Mm -hmm. making them say, it's making them come to the realization that they're not a superhero and they don't have these skills and and the self-awareness that you talked about. And and more importantly, it's making them aware to say, hey, help me out here. I don't know what to do, right? Because that's ultimately what we want them to do in real life. Yeah, I think one of the calls that just comes to mind for me is a gentleman who got struck by a vehicle, you know, just pretty sick trauma. And I remember there was a, you know, degloving, there was a, you know, open skull fracture. There's all these big, huge, distracting injuries that just draw your attention. I had a brand new EMT with me who was still in college, who hadn't ever seen a trauma before. And I had a CPR only driver who his attitude was, I drive the truck. If they're in cardiac arrest, I'll do compressions, but like, I don't get involved in that. And it was just me. And I remember getting really overwhelmed really quickly. And I felt like the only way I grounded myself was uh, the words of a preceptor that just popped in my head, which was, if you get lost, start at the beginning. I just took a deep breath and I was like, I don't know where I'm going with in my head. And I said, okay, stop. Does he have an airway? Yes. Okay. Is he breathing? Not well. Okay, let's back him. All right. Does he have circulation? Yes, he has a carotid pulse. And we got to the hospital and... All I really knew was he had a pulse. It was it was not too fast, not too slow, but I felt it. He was breathing with assistance from us. He had a decent SpO2. His color had gotten better, and he was still alive. And that was the extent of what I knew about yeah, that yeah. call. But just having that ability, when you feel yourself just kind of starting to drift into the atmosphere, to say, okay, stop. Does he have an airway? Yeah. Is he breathing? Does he have a pulse? And just like for me, that's always a good way for me to just anchor myself back to the beginning and people always 
get frustrated about those registry sheets when we're teaching them, but man, it really does come back. That's a tool that you can use to yeah. ground yourself. There's a lot there, right? And, and, and there's a lot of research behind what you just said too. There's a concept called cognitive offloading. And it basically means that, you know, in these moments, there's a million things you could think about. There's a million things that you could be worried about or concerned about, but the reality is there's a few things that you can actually do. Yeah. And uh, one of the really important strategies that we think about when, when it comes to the acute stress countermeasures is to cognitively offload, get rid of that extraneous stuff that's not going to matter, right? He's not going to bleed to death from a degloving injury. Maybe he, you know, um, yeah, uh, no, unless he is, saying. right? Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah. like, unless that's a major concern, let's not worry about that right now. Let's worry about the things that kill him. You know, there's a good examples of that too. Captain Sully's the guy that I think about when you talk about stuff like that. You we know? actually played that radio traffic, the black box traffic, when we did the crew resource management. There you and go. That, that was that was such an awesome example of a huge high stress situation, but they had trained on it. They had yep. checklists in place, and yep. it's like it sounds like they're ordering a pizza. It's well, just well, yeah. And, and and if you if you talk to him and 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 you what was going through his head, he'll say that the, the phrase that he kept saying to himself was just fly the plane, just fly the plane, yep. just fly the plane, exactly. right? That's cognitive offloading at yeah. its best. Yep. The other one, I had the good fortune to meet one of the battalion chiefs. He was the first chief on the scene of the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, the Merrill yeah. Federal Building. Yeah. And uh, that response was just a, a, a battalion response. It was uh, two engines and a truck. They didn't know it was the a bombing of the building. Yeah. And they got there and the dust cloud was so thick they couldn't see anything. And when the cloud finally cleared, the guy said, you know, a building was in half. Yeah. And he said, you know, there were so many things I had to think about, but the reality is I just couldn't do much more than contain it, right? And yeah. to keep people from going in. Yeah. And he's right. That's exactly what he should have done. The, the, there's a million things you could do on that trauma call, but there's really only a couple things that you have the capability to do. And, and the good news in EMS is that for the most part, it's a couple of those things that mean the most, right? If you focus on those, those major tasks, that's what the patients really need in the end anyway. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That, that almost, uh, that Oklahoma story kind of reminds me of the Worcester cold storage, how yeah. they're just, it's just going sideways. They're losing guys. They can't find them. Everybody's getting upset. And, you know, hats off to that chief who had the ability to just say, I can't do anything about that right now, but what I can do is I can keep that guy right there in front of me yep. from getting lost. Right. We just lost all of these guys, and you know, we uh, what I can do right now is keep you from getting lost. Yeah, that's I mean, I it happens. Control. That's that's exactly the situation. You know, is that people start trying to get too complex with situations, and and I don't blame them. Right, I, it's happened to me plenty of times. Yeah, but uh, it, that's one of the really important strategies when we think about how to fix these problems. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely huge. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about, so let's say you're a training officer, you're a young, ambitious yeah. person in a in an organization, and you'd like to do some of this type of training. Yeah. What's a good framework for getting started, and, and what's the keys to a successful program? Well, first and foremost is that we know that training is the key, right? Because the more we can routine we can make these things routine. The more situations we can expose people to, the better. You know, unfamiliarity is the one of the linchpins of stress, right? So if we can get these kinds of situations in front of people, and I think, in my opinion, um, that what we really have to do is move them out of that sort of classroom, click, click, click PowerPoint 
and into these experiential learning kind of situations. So when we think about the, the use, when I first started teaching paramedic class, it was probably 90% classroom and 10% that. By the time I was done, we were like probably 75% scenario education, 25% everything else, just because I, it works so well. And it, it was so important to put these kinds of, and, and again, it's not just about like, how many times can I make you intubate somebody, but it's how many times can I give you a complex situation that you have to use resources and tools and navigate your way out of because all the rest of those skills will come with practice, but it's that mindset of thinking and, and, and sort of preparing yourself for that moment that really makes the most important. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't learn how to innovate people, right? And, and the, the actual physical skill is also going to be important because if you have that, it's one less concern that you have. But I think that first is to start out, you know, get people into these exper experiential situations. You know, I think about like continuing education. I teach a lot still. Um, well, not a lot anymore, but I, you know, I still am a big fan of teaching. And, uh, you know, when we think about continuing education, most of the time it's some dope like me coming in and giving you an hour long lecture. But, you know, really what we ought to be doing is saying, hey, let's figure out a way to, uh, to, to do something and it, to do something where people are moving around and, and using these skills. I, I did, uh, I was teaching a PEP class. Uh, this is a million years ago, but it was perhaps one of the most profound lessons I've ever had. Uh, and uh, we all morning long, we were talking about peds arrest and talking about the pediatric gear. And, you know, we had it out. We were in this big, you know, in the bay of a station and this big long table. And we had all the, their equipment was out and the defibrillator and the bag and all that stuff, the ped kit. And uh, we broke for lunch. And at lunchtime, I had this idea. And I said to the, the crew that was working, I said, uh, you know, take this pediatric mannequin, little baby mannequin. And I said, uh, at one fifteen, break through the door and just pretend that the kid's in cardiac arrest, right? Yeah. Just like a mom would come into yeah, a yeah, station yeah. or something like that. And, uh, at one fifteen, I'd forgotten that I had set that up. So we were back and we were talking and we were going through the gear and stuff. And all of a sudden the door goes crash. And this female paramedic was like Oscar winning performance. Yeah, comes in, she goes, oh, baby, screaming in my yeah. ear. And in that moment, I had like this little stress reaction myself. My heart was beating and I didn't know quite, quite yeah. know what I was doing. But um, uh, so I recovered <laughs> pretty quick and she's still screaming it. So I'm kind of now prompting people. I'm like, OK, just kind of keep going. And what I saw in that moment was like all the different variations of stress physiology occurring in front of me. There was yeah. a woman in front of me, you know, I'm saying to her, okay, go ahead, you know, just play it like it's real, get your equipment, keep doing your thing. She was trying to open the bag. Now, by the way, we've been opening this bag all morning long, right? Yeah. So it's nothing wrong with the bag, yeah. but she just couldn't work the zipper. So she was yeah. flipping the bag upside down. She's trying to yeah. work the zipper, flipping it upside, couldn't do it. The guy standing next to me though was the important one because he was a paramedic student at the time. He was an AMT paramedic student. And she was right next to him and she was trying to hand him the baby. And he was so freaked out in the moment that he just locked it up. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't talk. Couldn't, yeah. we were, and we were prompting and we're like, you know, take the baby, take the baby to the point where he got so mad that he just like huffed and stomped out of the room. Yeah. Like yeah. Left the room. Yeah. yeah. Now he was really mad at me and he, you know, he made this complaint that I was set him up, you know, and yeah. I had nothing to do with it. Right. Yeah. But, but, um, what a wonderful opportunity to talk to him about that, right? You know, mm -hmm. and, and we did eventually, we had to let it calm down a little bit, yeah, but we eventually kind of said, hey, listen, it's okay. It's okay to be freaked out in that moment. But here's the things you got to do, yeah. right? Here's the only thing you can't do is leave the room, right? Yeah. You got to be yeah, able yeah. to overcome that. And what it made me realize is like, that was all, there was no like high fidelity simulator there. There was no, you know, like a video or audio. This is all just, this is like a, a two buck training. Mm -hmm. 
that just produced all that in that little short moment. And yeah. it was so powerful because, well, we did, you know, after that, we debriefed it and we talked about the, and everybody was like, yeah, my heart was beating fast and all that kind of stuff. I said to myself, we could do this anytime, yeah. right? You know, like instead of having me come in and do a talk, let's come in and do 10 scenarios yeah. and get people moving around and be creative. And, and that really led to some work we did in the paramedic class that was really meaningful, you know, like just gave them these rich experiences instead of just, you know, memorizing text and, you know, practicing skill sheets. That's, it's not useful for anything except to taking a test, you know, yeah. and that, that, that's not what EMS is all about. Isn't that so entertaining? I, just hearing that story, I remember just when I go into work and I put my uniform on, most of the time I feel pretty locked in. Like calls come in, I get in my truck, I hut hut my way over there, I take care of business, I do what I need to do. But a very simple syncope at the grocery store or, you know, my wife and I, who's an ER nurse for the last, you know, five or 10 years, we stumbled upon a head-on crash into a rock, mm-hmm. dead on arrival, and it was like I could feel myself getting elevated, but that's what I do every day. I've been in EMS for 10 years. I yeah. dealt with a ton of those. I used to work on Williston. We had tons of wrecks on the interstate. And just that concept of not being ready, yeah. you know, and like what that looks like. Context, yeah. It was just, it was so wild. It's like, man, I do this every day. This is my full-time <laughs> job. And and I feel like a bystander. And yeah. I remember taking that back. And one of the episodes we had previously is about moral injury, which is kind of circling back to what it sounded like you were kind of dancing around in the beginning too, which is that idea of you have an idea about how you feel that yeah. you should act and what you've trained to do. And when you fail to do it, it causes this like disconnection in your brain where your brain's like, well, you're a paramedic, but you didn't innovate the airway when you needed to. So well, isn't the paramedic supposed to do that? Yeah. So are you not a paramedic? I thought you were a paramedic. And your brain just replays this loop in your head yeah. and it can be really tough. And and we talked a lot about in that podcast, the difference between moral injury and PTSD, because there's a lot of people that yeah. kind of glump them together, but they're, it's really not, you know, and they did yeah. this research um, from overseas about a lot of soldiers who, you know, had a, a buddy die or were involved in some incident or drivers of Humvees that went over an IED and they treated it as PTSD, but it, it really wasn't the PTSD. It was that you're the driver, you have all this training, you're supposed to avoid the explosives, you ran over the explosives, and it's just like disconnecting your head. Yeah. And uh, I have a tragic example of that, unfortunately. So in Maine, right before I came up here, uh, there was an ER nurse, and she worked at a small critical access hospital, and uh, they were having a super busy night, and they're, uh, on, in one moment, there was like a, a, a trauma call, you know, the, so the trauma bay was full, there was another critical patient going on, and uh, a guy came in with a, a severe anaphylaxis. So she's handling the severe anaphylaxis with a doc that's trying to manage two critical patients. And the doc gives her a verbal order for um, uh, uh, intravenous epinephrine. And uh, she does the math in her head, screws it up, and gives the guy 10 times yeah. the normal dose of epinephrine. Yeah. Um, and the guy dies. Yeah. Um, now, the tragedy of this of course, she loses her job. She's only ever been a nurse. Yeah. All her friends are nurses, you yeah. know? So like, there's this whole piece. But the, the worst part was um, she killed herself. Yeah. You know, um, and and I think that's exactly an example of what you're talking about, right? Because, because not only is it a, an unreasonable expectation for her to do that kind of performance, yeah. right? You know, like, like we've, we've put her in a situation where it's impossible. Nobody's going to do math right under that circumstance. Nobody. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. care. 
and we've trained a generation of healthcare providers that you're somehow you know less than if you're taking a calculator out yeah, or, right. or turning to somebody else and say, hey, check my math or that kind of stuff. You know, because that's not what we do, and especially in EMS. But um, but you know, she lost her life. Yeah, you know, you yeah. know like that's and it was a it's a foreseeable problem related to a situation that we've set up for failure. Yeah, the last, I think, two episodes ago, we had Catherine Platt from the uh, medical center down here. She's a resident pharmacist. And we talked about epinephrine because it's so widely misadministered and there's so many med errors. And we looked at this huge case study. We talked about it right in the show. And and when a pharmacist was involved in the med push, zero errors were happened. The entire study, in the the macro study, there was a 0% error for... Using a pharmacist, the med dose errors were only when pharmacists were not consulted. Right. And so that brings up a great discussion of, I think we as individuals do have a role to play in preparing ourselves and doing the training. But I think there's also times where we have to look at the system and ask ourselves, is this a realistic situation to put someone in where we can expect someone who's not Superman to act appropriately. I mean, ask me back sometime and we'll do a whole, a whole episode on errors and, and preventing errors with systematic oh, changes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think, I think though, this relates exactly back to what we're talking about though, that this, this, this notion that we create EMS providers coming out of their classes that they can't fail and they can't ask for help. Right. And, and that's the cognitive dissonance, you know, she's here, she's like a, a real nurse should be able to do this math in their head. The real nurse shouldn't have to ask for help. I think we put paramedics and EMTs in that similar circumstance all the time. Yep. You know, so to me, when we're talking about training, what we've got to be able to say is no, a real paramedic, when they're not sure about a dose, turns to their partner and go, hey, double check this for me. Yep. You know, a real paramedic flips open their checklist and, and, and looks at it or takes out their iPhone and double checks it. And, and you're right. I mean, there's a whole mess of systemic things that we should be talking about too. Like the idea that doing math on a peds call in the middle of the night is not a, a correct thing to do. That's yeah. a whole other thing. Yeah. But but it's I think it's a lot about that perception that we create in in, in of who we are, right? And it, it's we're not supermen and it's it's irresponsible for us to think that people can perform in those kind of circumstances. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I think it's uh it's definitely something to think about. I know on my ambulance that I just that I've worked on for the past few years, it's covered in checklists and yeah. color coding. And I love design. I do some work with marketing, and so I kind of have that Adobe Illustrator background. And and my favorite, we had a we just had a training on um, newborn resuscitation, and some people were like, "Oh, well, the protocol seems a little wordy. It's hard for me to navigate." I'm like, "Okay, let's Great. fix it then." So we go, it. we we pull up Adobe Illustrator, put it on a nice blue background, blue for peds. We got nice black writing, easy to read from far away, and it just has a Love flow it. chart right there. Hey, if this, then that. If this, yeah. then that. Well, when you think about acute stress countermeasures and how you train, this is that's exactly it, right? You know, so take those things and make them easy. You know, I, I once had a uh, had a preceptor said to me, Dan look, this job is hard enough, right? There's too many things that are like innately difficult. Take all the things you can do and make them simple. Yeah. You know, I think at the time I was trying to start an IV, I was like, you know, upside down, trying to get the guy's arm. And he's like, hey, idiot, turn around and and approach this guy from the right angle. And I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, that's the kind of thing that when we think about how to prevent this kind of situational stress from happening, yeah, make all those easy things easy. You know, put up as many checklists and as many, if you come to my house to take care of my kid, I don't get Bring your calculator, bring your computer. I don't care. What, bring yeah, an abacus, exactly. whatever. To, you know, take care of my kid right. You know, yeah. like that's what my expectation of a stakeholder is. Yeah, it's an open book test. The ambulance is open book. You don't need to Amen. be 
a genius. It's not the bar exam. You right, know, bring right. your resources so you can right. succeed. You know, I think uh, a huge piece of it is when I first started in EMS, I remember, I and it's not their fault. That's probably what they were trained. But I remember someone specifically saying, never read the protocol book in front of the patient because then yeah. they think you don't know what you're doing. And to this day, I, I have no problem reading the protocol book because if the patient right. asks me, I say, yes, ma'am, I am reading the protocol. It's because I want to ensure that I'm giving the best possible care sure. I can. And that mindset persists. I mean, think about it this way. When you walk into that national registry exam, if you take out your protocol book, what do they say to you? They're like, oh, you can't have that. See you next month. Yeah, yeah right. right? Exactly. You fail, yeah. right? That's we, we, we say that right from the start. And, and I mean, I get it. it's not that simple. We've got to have some recall. Yeah. But good gracious. I mean, shouldn't yeah. we be teaching people the, in an age when every single person in America has a smartphone in their yeah. pocket? Why aren't people looking things up? Oh, you yeah. Know, like, we, yeah. absolutely, we should be talking I about just, that. Uh, I write a whole series of books, just fiction books, and it's uh, written by a Navy SEAL retired. And his common mantra in this book is always exploit every technical and tactical advantage you can every right. time, no matter what. There's no harm in winning, no matter what that means. Right. And if I can look something up, if I can bring a book with me, if I can print out a sheet, if I can yeah. plaster the inside of the ambulance. And and I used to uh, tell my folks back at Wilson, I said the inside of the ambulance is just a big dorm room. Put that whole, we put it on the walls, use yeah. the wall. There's no reason it needs to be, you know, we got a laminator for a reason. There's no right. reason you can't yeah, use yeah. a color printer and put some stuff on there and set yourself up for success. 100%. You know, because I, people still struggle with the GCS, you know, to this day, it, it can trip people up, Yeah. you know, but that you can put all that up there. You yeah. Know, you can set yourself up. I can tell you that we've been really sensitive about that kind of stuff in, in Vermont EMS. And, you know, we've been really trying to think about that in our protocols and, and trying to dumb stuff down. You know, that was the whole move. We started talking about using some kind of a pediatric system. We don't want people doing math. Like, yeah, we don't want people yeah. – like that's just, yeah. you know, like we want it to be simple. We want it to be something that you pull out and use, you know. Um, it's just – it's not it's not a reasonable expectation. Yeah. It, it, I had a pretty cool discussion with uh, Dr. Plant Dr. George. I was talking about different types of epi mixing that they're doing around the country. You know, the you know anaphylactic epi and the yeah. liter bag, which is big a lot of places. And then, you know, what, what we do with, you know, obviously mixing in the 250 bags. And I, I asked, like, hey, how come you guys are so strict on the mixing in the protocol book? And she had a great answer that ties into this. She just said, well, there's a lot of different levels of service and a lot of different levels of experience. Yeah. And if we provide one way and everyone trains that one way and all the pharmacy bags are made up that one way, yeah. it it actually makes it easier on the provider. Yep. And you have less room for error because, you know, you're not using cardiac epi and anaphylactic epi and mixing it in this and that and yeah. one thing and the other thing. And and uh, I thought that made a lot of sense. And I was yeah, like, I, okay. Yeah, I think she's right too. Yeah, you know, you can't you can't fully engineer all that stuff, which yeah. is why you got to still have a thinking provider and you got to prepare them and you know get their mind right to begin with. But a lot of that stuff is is our own making, and you know we we do it all the time. We we make stuff harder than it needs to be, and we make it you know ridiculous expectations. Yeah, I always I always go back to when I first got my pump operator training through Pato, and they were saying, you know, a good pump operator isn't a good pump operator. A good pump operator is a good troubleshooter yeah. because. You just ha you can't train a pump operator for every single fluid yeah. dynamics problem that may or may not occur. But what you can do is teach them these common themes that yeah. fix most things. Okay, where's your water coming from? Where's your water going? What's your engine speed? Yep. Do you have power? Is your line kink? Like these basic themes. And I always parallel that to EMS, yeah. just like what we talked about, where if things are going sideways, take a breath, reset. Do you have an airway? Do you have breathing? Do you have circulation? Is, is the pump paused? Maybe yeah. that's why it's not giving effect. Like take a second and just the minute that you ground yourself, 
you start building that confidence back and you're like, they do have an airway. They are breathing. They do have circulation. And then that whole stress level comes down. Yeah. And then you start to notice things and you're like, wait a minute, it's not plugged in. Or wait, it's backwards. I, I just, the other day, a couple months ago, I was trying to run a nitro drip on someone real sick, CHF exacerbation. And I'm, I'm trying to force the tubing into the pump and I can't get it in the pump because I'm talking on the radio, like in one hand, I'm, my partner's trying to set up CPAP. I'm trying to jam it in. I'm trying to jam it in. And I just took a break. I took a second. I just set it down and I look back and I had the tubing backwards. Yeah. That's all it was. <laughs> it was just simple, but like you just do it over and over and your instinct as it's taking longer and longer as you rush quicker and quicker yeah. and sometimes just resetting, breaking that cycle and saying like, okay, you know, like I hear my dad's voice. If it, you know, if it doesn't work, don't force it. Don't jam the dishwasher door shut. There's yeah, probably yeah. a fork in there. Hang on a second, figure out what's wrong yeah. and fix it. Yeah. I mean, I think I agree. All those things we were talking before, but uh, you know, I think that cognitive offloading and, and sort of making EMS simple has been really, yeah. if I could say like, you know, one of the most important lessons I've learned as a paramedic as I've come up is just, you know, simplify things, yeah. you know, make them, make them, you know, break it down to the things that really make, make the most difference. And there's like three things, five things, maybe at the most, you know, that we really do that are, are outcome changing. And, you know, that's, that's exactly it. You focus on those, then we'll worry about all the peripheral stuff later on. Yep. No, absolutely. You know, I think it's, you know, like basketball players, they don't practice their shot from every single location on the court. They go to the areas where they know they're going to be taking the shots yeah. and then you do the repetitions in those areas. So. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being here. Um, any last minute advice for people coming up through the ranks or looking to be the best possible EMS provider they can be? Practice a lot. You know, uh, again, you're going to take your lumps. Everybody yeah. does, yeah. you know, uh, learn from your mistakes, get better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it. We have to have you on the show again soon. I hope so. Thanks very much.